Thanks, Luke. Luke's always ready to serve. I love that about Luke. That's actually not mine, but that's a good spot for it if you, yeah. Thanks. (laughs) Thanks, buddy. Uh, I want to start today with a mulligan. No, I want to start today with a can of Coke. And uh, I have a whole bunch of these out in the lobby. You may have noticed that as you walked in. You're going, what's going on? Some of you asked, are we having a party today? We're always having a party because Jesus is Lord. Um, some of you asked, hey, are we starting to sell Coke now? And I said, yes, they're $3 a piece, and that's for my retirement fund. But uh, we're not doing any of those things. In fact, we've got some cans of Coke, and I'm going to give these out to anybody who has the guts to sit on the front row on Easter Sunday. Look at this. Look at this front row. It is empty up there. Anybody got the guts to sit on the front? No, that's not what that's for either. Um, we've got a whole bunch of cans of Cokes out there, and I've got a fun challenge for you. Uh, in the lobby after service, there's going to be a whole bunch of them. Anna Godfrey's going to be out there passing these out, and each can of Coke will be accompanied by an Easter invite card. And here's what I want you to do right now. I just want you to stop and take a moment and think about one person that you would love to see attend church on Easter. Take a moment to think of who would you just love to see here. Maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's a person you buy your coffee from on the way to work in the morning. Who would you love to see attend church on Easter? You got that name? Now you've got it. I want you to grab a can of Coke and an invite card Put that can of Coke in your refrigerator and invite them to church, okay? Now, here's what the can of Coke has to do with it. Every time you see that can of Coke, every time you open your fridge, you're going to see that can of Coke, and you're going to be reminded to pray for them, right? This bright red can of Coke, whenever you see that invite or this can of Coke, you're going to be reminded to pray for that person, whoever they are. And that's the most important part. We can have some fun. We can be silly with the can of Coke, with the invite, and the different ways that we can invite people. But we believe something. We have a serious conviction around here that prayer is the engine that powers everything. Prayer is the engine that makes everything go around here. So when you leave, grab a can of Coke, grab an invite card, and invite that one person. I can't wait to meet him. By the way, I I just want you to know that I'm not asking you to do something that I haven't done, that I'm not going to do. I've got my one person, okay? I've got my one person. His name is Alex, and uh, he's at the Y in the morning with me, and he's a great guy. He works hard, and uh, we've developed a friendship over the last several months, and I've invited him to Easter, and I am really looking forward to seeing Alex here at church one Sunday. And and I don't drink Coke, but I can guarantee you that when Alex comes, it's going to look like the celebration after a championship game, okay, at my house. Outside my house. Leah, if, Leah's down with the kids, but Leah, if you're listening, I'm not going to make a mess inside, okay, darling? Okay, so um, have some fun with that. Invite somebody to church, and I can't wait to meet your one. So we're in Mark chapter 14. This is the last week of Jesus' ministry. And it's easy for us to forget that the timeline of this last week of Jesus' ministry is so long because Mark devotes a significant portion of his gospel to this last week, and the first 10 chapters kind of just warp speed through two and a half years of ministry. So what does Jesus do in this last week? Well, we know that he comes into Jerusalem, 
And he makes a mess in the temple. He makes a few people mad. He answers a few questions. He spends time with his disciples. Well, today's Wednesday. Jesus has done those things already. He's taught lessons. He's made people mad. He's cleansed the temple. He's had a triumphal entry. Today's Wednesday. What is Jesus doing today? Well, he starts, he starts with uh, a little bit of a meal. He starts with a meal. Maybe you've, you've heard of this meal, the Last Supper. It's the institution of this communion feast that we just partook of. The institution of this communion feast that Anna bid us to come and join together in. He institutes that today. And when the meal's over, Jesus and the disciples, they sing a hymn together. And they head out to the Mount of Olives. Here's what we read. Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 32. They went to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And Jesus said, sit here while I go and pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he became deeply troubled and distressed. And he told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Stay here and keep watch with me. You see that last line, stay here and keep watch with me? You know what that is? That's a command. That's a command from Jesus. Do what I'm telling you to do. And what happens next? What happens next? Exactly. Jesus goes off to pray and the disciples very vigilantly and carefully stay awake and keep watch. And when Jesus returns, he says, well done, good and faithful servants. Now you can rest. That's right? Hey, this is my sermon. You just listen, okay? No, you're right. Right, I'm sorry, I got caught up in the moment. Here's what actually happens. He went out a little further and he fell to the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the awful hour that were awaiting him might pass away. Here's what he says. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then he returned and found the disciples asleep. What do you mean they're sleeping? It's not exactly like they've had a terribly hard day. They had dinner with Jesus. It's fine. They didn't have to go out and rebuild the temple by themselves today. They haven't had a horribly difficult day. They're sleeping. And not only have they not had a horrendously difficult day, Jesus gave them a command to specifically not do what they're doing. Keep watch. Stay awake. What do you mean they're sleeping? Well, needless to say, Jesus is a little underwhelmed when he comes back and he finds him sleeping, maybe even a little annoyed. Here's what he says. Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you watch with me even for, for one hour? Keep watching, and pray so that you will not give in to temptation for the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. All right, so they've been reprimanded. That's the end of that. Right? Okay. Sufficiently chastised. We've learned our lesson. Jesus, we're very, very sorry. You're going to go back and pray. And when you come back a second time, you're going to find us awake and vigilant, ready to keep watch, having learned our lesson. Then Jesus left them again and prayed the same as before. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open. And they didn't know what to say. Sorry, I guess. Not so much. So you notice this time, Jesus doesn't even correct them. 
He just shakes his head and he gets back to work without them. He gets back to the work that he is here to do without them. When he returned a third time, he said, go ahead, sleep, have your rest. No, wait, wait a minute, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up, we gotta get going. Look, my betrayer is here. This is an odd conversation. You think that, that Jesus might have communicated some level of urgency about what was going on. And if the disciples were paying attention, you think they might have picked up on this level of urgency that Jesus is communicating. The Last Supper, this is the last time I'm going to eat this meal, right? Minor clue here. Last time I'm going to eat this meal. Guys, last time I'm going to eat this meal. You think the disciples might understand that there's a sense of urgency here and yet they fall asleep and they fall asleep and they fall asleep. What am I getting at here? Because this is an odd story. Jesus gave the apostles a command, keep watch with me. He's given us a command too. He's given us a command to go into all the world. Make disciples of all the nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe everything I've commanded. And lo, I remember, I will be with you always, even until the very end of the age. Jesus has given us a command. But like the disciples, many churches have said, Jesus, this is a pretty good spot right here. This looks like a good spot to rest for a minute, Jesus. Maybe we'll just relax here. Jesus, maybe we'll just close our eyes for a minute. This is a pretty good-sized church here, Jesus. I think we'll just stay like this. I don't think we need to be changing all that stuff, Jesus. Maybe we'll just stay the same. Let's just rest. There are a lot of churches that have fallen asleep. There are a lot of churches that have really heavy eyes. Research was recently done by the Gallup organization and the Pew Forum says that 5,000 churches close every year in the United States. I mean, let me say that again. I didn't say uh, 5,000 churches have closed since 2000. I didn't say 5,000 churches have closed since 2010. I said 5,000 churches close every year in the United States. That means 13 churches every day decide that they're no longer going to meet. And if 13 churches every day decide that they're going to close, that means that 91 churches are meeting for the last time for worship today. I guess if you decide to close on a Wednesday, you're going to go ahead and meet that following Sunday, right? So, 91 churches are meeting for the last time today. It means that at 91 churches, when people leave today, they're going to grab a hymn book, take it with them to remember their former church. It means today at 91 churches, they're going to sing the old rugged cross for the last time. At 91 churches, they're going to wash the communion trays for the very last time. I know, I know some churches close because there's nobody left in the area. All right, we, can, we can go through all different kinds of scenarios why churches close. I understand that many churches were started before automobiles existed, and so it was convenient to have many churches close together. And now that people can drive a little bit, it's not viable to have a church every mile and a quarter. 
I understand that distinction. I understand that some churches close because population density shifts and people move from rural areas to metropolitan areas. I understand that some churches close for those reasons. But some churches close because they've forgotten that Jesus has given us a command. Some churches close because they forgot that Jesus has given us a command. And the command that Jesus has given us isn't to preserve anything. The command that Jesus has given us isn't to make sure anything is the way that Tony wants it or anything is the way that you want it. Some churches close because they've forgotten that Jesus has given us a command and that command is this. Go into all the world. Make disciples of all the nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe everything that I've commanded. But remember, I'm going to be with you whenever you're doing this and wherever you're doing this at. So 91 churches are going to meet for the last time today. I know you, maybe you're going, you know your Bible pretty well. And maybe you're going, well, wait a minute, Tony. Tony, Jesus made a promise in Matthew chapter 18 when Peter gave his great confession. Here's what he said. I, I know exactly what he said in Matthew chapter 18. He said, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not be able to overcome it. What do you have to say to that, Tony? I say, exactly. You're absolutely right. But that doesn't mean what you think it means. It doesn't mean that Jesus is going to preserve any one particular church. It means he will preserve his church, Christians all over the world. And if that means pruning an ineffective branch, he will absolutely do it. He's not going to let an ineffective church get in the way when there's work to be done, when a command has been given. So there's a lot at stake here. There's a lot at stake here. My question is, if there's so much at stake and if some churches are getting sleepy, how do we make sure that we don't get sleepy? How do we make sure that we don't get sleepy? I want to go back to the beginning of chapter 4 because Mark really clarifies this question really well for us. Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Here's what we read. It was now two days before Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The leading priests and the teachers of religious law were still looking for an opportunity to capture Jesus secretly and kill him. But they said, not during the Passover celebration. Yeah, yeah, that's right. If we did it then, the people would riot. Meanwhile, Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy. While he was eating, a woman came in with an expensive alabaster jar of perfume made from essence of nard, and she broke open the jar and poured the perfume over his head. And some of those who were at the table were indignant. Why waste such expensive perfume, they asked. It could have been sold for a year's wages and the money given to the poor. So they scolded her harshly. They scolded her harshly. But Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why criticize her for doing such a good thing to me? You're always going to have the poor among you, and you can help them whenever you want to, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could and has anointed my body for burial ahead of time. I tell you the truth, wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deeds will be remembered and discussed. 
Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve disciples, went to the leading priests to arrange to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted when they heard why he had come, and they promised to give him money. So we began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. Two stories here, and the contrast is striking. We have this woman who is ready to serve Jesus, and we have Judas who is looking for an excuse to betray Jesus. Let's start with a woman. She has a bottle of perfume, and it is lavish. It's made from a substance called essence of nard. This isn't just a luxury item. This is extravagant, right? You're not going to find this on Amazon. You're going to find this on some really expensive street with fancy shops. I'm not even fancy enough to know what those streets are. There you go. Uh, you're not, anyway, I wasn't in my notes. I should stick to my notes. So this, uh, this bottle of perfume, you can't, even, you can't even get this in Israel. You can't get this anywhere near Bethany. This comes from India exclusively. You don't get a bottle of this by accident. Uh, a lot of times, uh, the commentators say that this is passed down as a, as a family heirloom, and, and you could put your trust in this if you need to take out a loan. I may not have the money right now, but I've got this bottle of essence of nard. Right? I know, you know I'm good for it. Okay? Uh, it was often passed down from generation to generation as a family heirloom. It could have been an extravagant gift. We don't know exactly how you get it, but we do know that you don't get this by accident. You don't get this by accident. No matter how it was acquired, it was absolutely a gift fit for a king. And this woman breaks it open and washes Jesus' feet with this gift fit for a king. Well, we know it's appropriate because he is a king. But let's think about it. If you're talking about uh, a perfume, essence of nard, that's incredibly expensive, expensive, a lavish gift for a king, you might every once in a while on your anniversary get one little dropper and, you know, something like that. Make it last, right? But even then, you're not going to do that just to go to work every day. You're going to do one little dropper on special occasions. That's not what this woman does. She breaks open the jar and washes Jesus' feet with it. Now let's think, about, let's think about the first century world and our feet. People didn't walk around with boots on. People didn't walk around with closed-toed shoes on. They walked around with sandals or barefoot, and they walked around all day in dirt and dust and mud and, forgive me, and animal droppings. I'm not, not being crude. I'm just telling you how it was. They walked around. It was unavoidable. Sometimes you could avoid it. Sometimes you walked through it. And so when you walked into someone's house, you had dirty feet. You understand why foot washing was an important job in the first century world? You understand why it was a job fit for a servant in the first century world? The owner of the home didn't want animal dung on his hands as he was washing your feet. That was the job for the servants. And so they would wash people's feet with water. Except that's not what this woman does. She breaks open a jar of perfume that was 300 days wages and washes Jesus' feet with that, knowing full well that when he walks out again, his feet will get dirty again. This was a gift fit for a king, an expression of faith. 
that this woman knew exactly who Jesus was and he was worth everything she had. And in all likelihood, this expensive perfume was everything she had. Jesus gave everything for us. On a smaller scale, we can see that this woman knew that she was going to give everything to Jesus. She cleaned Jesus' feet with this essence of nard. To her, it was an expression of faith. To everyone around her, it was an expression of foolishness. You could have sold that money. You could have sold that perfume and we'd have given the money to the poor. A year's wages. Well, more or less. It, it says that uh, a, a bottle of this essence of nard would have been about 300 days wages. 300 denarii or 300 days wages. And that's, that's pretty close, right? We, we get the point. Uh, I, did, I did some searching and I looked at the median individual income for Washington County. It's about $35,000 $35, a year. And so we'll say $35,000 flat. That makes the math better. Okay? Uh, so if you earn $35,000 a year, in 300 days, you'd earn right at $29,000. And people are going, well, wait a minute. You just wasted... $29,000 to make Jesus' feet smell good for this meal only. All of a sudden, that point that they're trying to make seems to ring a little more true, doesn't it? We could have given $29,000 to the poor in our community. These people don't sound so silly and trivial anymore, do they? It's understandable that the disciples might struggle with this lavish gift not going to the poor, but I don't think that's what's happening here. I don't think that's what's happening here, mostly because John gives us a little bit more insight into this passage. So here we go from the book of John, chapter 12. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet with it. Wiping his feet with her hair, the house was filled with the fragrance. But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said that perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Now listen to this. Not that he cared for the poor. He was a thief, and since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. Judas wasn't concerned about the poor. He was mad because he wasn't going to have the opportunity to pilfer from this extravagant gift. This gift that was given to Jesus would be of no consequence to him. That's what Judas is mad about. Judas isn't mad because he was advocating for the poor. And so here we can see an important lesson, an important contrast. This woman wasn't focused, or this woman was focused on Jesus, and it caused her to act selflessly. Judas was focused on himself, and it caused him to react selfishly. So I want you to notice the difference. See, when you're focused on Jesus, you can act. When you're focused on Jesus, you can act. You can take an action that makes sense for glorifying His name. Even if it doesn't make sense to the people around you, you can act. But if you're focused on yourself, you will always react. You'll always react if your focus is on yourself. Why? Because anything that anyone does is about you. And you have to decide if it's a good thing or a bad thing. 
So if you're focused on yourself, you're always going to react. And that's what Judas does here. He went to the leading priest to arrange to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted when they heard he had come, and they promised to give him money. So he began to look for an opportunity to betray Jesus. What does any of this have to do with our question? What does any of this have to do with our question? How do we make sure we don't get sleepy? Here's the answer. We are most at risk of falling asleep when we're most concerned with ourselves. We're most at risk of falling asleep when we're most concerned with ourselves. We can look at that from the opposite perspective too. The best way to stay awake is to stay selfless. The best way to stay awake is to stay selfless. And if you've been following along as we've gone through the Gospel of Mark, you've seen that this is the way Jesus lived. He was always ready to help somebody. He was always ready to serve We'll just go through this really quickly. Mark chapter 1, Jesus heals a man with an evil spirit. Mark chapter 2, Jesus heals many people. Mark chapter, uh, Mark chapter 3, Jesus heals a man with a deformed hand. Mark chapter 4, Jesus takes time to teach his disciples an important lesson. Chapter 5, Jesus heals the garrison demoniac, the woman with the flow of blood, and Jairus' daughter. Jesus feeds the 5,000. Jesus heals a deaf man. Jesus heals a blind man. Jesus heals a boy. Jesus blesses the children and heals the son of Timaeus. Jesus cleanses the temple, Jesus teaches about the most important things. Jesus teaches his disciples to be ready. Jesus allows himself to be arrested. Jesus lived selflessly. Always. Always ready to serve those around him. He was always ready to serve people. Sometimes he was out healing people, healing crowds, saving people from blindness and paralysis, even back from the dead. Sometimes that's what he was doing. Sometimes, sometimes he was investing in the people around him. He was investing in the people who would continue the ministry after he was gone. So ministry leaders, I want you to hear this today. I know it's easy to think that we're not doing ministry unless we're doing something, something tangible. But if you invest in the people that serve with you and the people that serve under you, that is absolutely ministry and it is vitally important ministry that follows the example of Jesus. Investing in the people that serve under you and serve with you is ministry. Jesus bears this out over and over again in the course of his ministry that the best way to stay awake is to stay selfless. Now listen, I know right now I am preaching to the choir. Absolutely. Right now we are focused on Nebraska. We are focused on Easter and we are awake Right? We are wired. We have had three cups of coffee, church. We are good to go. Nobody's sleeping. But here's what's going to happen. The team's going to get back from Nebraska. Easter's going to be over, and we'll be tempted to say, this is a pretty good spot right here, Jesus. Let's just rest for a little bit. Let's just lay down in this grove, under this tree. We'll just take it easy for a little bit, Jesus. The inescapable reality is this. Jesus has given us a command. He has given us a command to go into all the world, make disciples of all the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe everything that Jesus has commanded and to remember that He's going to be with us wherever we go and whenever we go. We've got to remember that we've been commanded. And the best way to stay awake is to stay selfless. 
I was talking with a friend of mine this last week, and, and she said something that really stuck with me. Uh, she said, we're grateful for a calling on our hearts to live a life of action-filled faith, not just words. And I got that text message, and uh, I was at a stop sign. I don't text while I drive. You shouldn't either. It's a different sermon, though. But uh, I don't text while I drive, but I, I got this message, and it was a stop sign, and I just stopped, and I thought about it for a second. I thought, well, that's going into a sermon, right? And, and I just love those words, action-filled faith. That's how you stay awake. Because we can convince ourselves that we have faith, but if there's no action, man, we're just getting comfortable under a tree. Right? We can convince ourselves that, that we know the Bible really well and we understand the intricacies of theology, but if that doesn't inspire action in us, man, our eyelids are just getting heavy. We can convince ourselves that we know the Word of God and that we have faith, but if that doesn't inspire action in us, we're saying, let's just take a break, Jesus. The best way to stay awake is to stay selfless. Uh, one of my favorite actors in the world is Bill Murray. We're not there yet. <laughs> That's not Bill Murray, in case you saw. <laughs> Uh, one of my favorite actors is Bill Murray, and so uh, this last week, I don't know if any of you listened to Southeast Sermon. If you haven't, you should, because it's really good, but, but Dave Stone started his sermon by saying, one of my favorite actors is Bill Murray, and I, he's speaking to my heart. This, is, this sermon's for me, not for any of the 30,000 people that go there. This sermon's for me, and so I, I leaned in a little closer when I realized he was talking about Bill Murray, because he's one of my favorites, too. I love Ghostbusters and Caddyshack and Groundhog Day and Stripes and Space Jam, and you shouldn't watch any of those movies. But uh, I was delighted to learn that there was a documentary that recently came out about Bill Murray and his life. And it turns out that Bill Murray has this personal philosophy where he seeks joy in all situations, and he seeks to give joy in all situations. So naturally, I had to watch this documentary, and it is just fantastic. Film member, or the, the filmmaker goes around the country, and he doesn't interview Bill Murray. He interviews all the people that have been impacted by these silly, fun, encouraging things that Bill Murray has done. So I want to tell you about just two of them this morning. One time, Bill Murray was in a city and he was lost in the suburbs and uh, he was supposed to be somewhere. He was supposed to be at a party, uh, a, a banquet that he was going to be speaking at and he was just lost and he calls and tells the people he can't make it. But uh, he's lost in the suburbs and he sees all of these cars parked in front of a house and he just said, well, there must be a party here. I'm just going to go in. And so he goes in and he starts asking all the people where the hosts are and it turns out they were in the kitchen doing dishes. So he goes into the kitchen, he says, hey, you guys go be with your guests, I'm going to do the dishes. I don't know how long it takes a person to relent and let Bill Murray do your dishes, but I would object. But Bill Murray does the dishes, and as quietly as he comes in, he leaves. He just wanted to give those people just a little bit of joy. And I think it probably worked. I think it inspired something in them that maybe they'll treat somebody else a little differently. But this one's my favorite. He was flying into San Francisco, had a 90-minute cab ride to a venue he was going to, and he strikes up a conversation with the cab driver. And he says, so what do you like to do? What do you do in your free time? The cab driver says, well, I like to play saxophone. Oh, are you any good? No. I drive a cab 14 hours a day. I'm exhausted. I don't have any time to practice. Well, where's your saxophone at? It's in the trunk of the cab. Pull over, get it. I'm going to drive, you practice. 
And so for the entire 90-minute cab ride, Bill Murray drove, and the guy practiced his saxophone. I love that. He was interviewed about that shortly after the event. And uh, he said, well, it was obvious. Anybody would have done the same thing. I don't know how to play a saxophone. I can't give him any tips on how to play the saxophone, but I do know how to drive a car, and so I did what I could for my new friend. That's pretty neat, isn't it? I love that. I love that. I don't think Bill Murray would have a hard time understanding this statement. The best way to stay awake is to stay selfless. I bet he has a lot of fun. And I don't know what his motivation is. I don't know if Bill Murray's trying to honor God or if he just wants to make people smile. But I do think it's an example that we can learn from, church. As I watched that documentary, it made me want to go out of my way and be nice to somebody. It made me want to go out and do something unexpectedly pleasant for somebody in church. That's our job, not just to do good things, but to make the people around us say, the way they live their life, I want that. My friend Sam Haley says, our job is to make people thirsty for faith. And I think he's right. Jesus said it this way, you're the light of the world. City on a hill can't be hidden. No, you don't put a, a, a lamp under a basket. You put it on a lampstand. It gives light to everybody who's in the room. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may what? See your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's our mission, church. And if we stay on mission, I promise we'll have too much fun to get sleepy. I thought about this phrase this past week. I thought about it, and I kept going back to my friend Lukma. Uh, he kept coming into my mind. Leah and Luke and Michelle and I, we all know him from college, and he is one of the godliest, most joyful men you could ever have the privilege of meeting. Uh, he's a Haitian. He runs an orphanage and school in, ha- in Haiti, uh, Port-au-Prince, with his brother Salonique, and uh, they are just godly men. Uh, dear brother and dear friend of mine from school, uh, when I moved up here and I trained transferred to Cincinnati Christian University to continue my education, I was delighted to find that Lukma was finishing his master's degree there, and so uh, we had the chance to reconnect. We hadn't seen each other for a couple years. We had the chance to reconnect, and he quickly said, you're staying in the dorms. You're not staying in the dorms anymore. You're going to come stay at my apartment, and it was wonderful, and I, I quickly, I said, listen, guys, I'm not staying in the dorm anymore. I'm going to stay with my friend Lukma, and we're going to have a great time. And we did, and we ordered pizza, and we stayed up late laughing and talking and praying, and it was just a joyful time. And it started getting a little later, and I'd like to go to bed early. I get up early, so I like to go to bed early. And I started to wonder, where am I going to sleep at? Because, you know, I love Lukma dearly, but he didn't have a couch. He had a kitchen table and some folding chairs, and I'm just wondering, where in the world, where in the world am I going to sleep at? And so I start to worry about this a little, and finally I have the courage to broach the subject. I said, Luke, where, where am I going to sleep at? And he says, you will sleep in my bed. I don't know what Haitian culture or customs are like, and I'm not worried about anything, but I'm just saying that's probably not the most comfortable thing. Well, where are you going to sleep at? And I'll never forget what he said. For as long as I live, he said, you are my guest, and it is my honor in Christ to sleep on the floor. I think my friend Lukma has read Mark chapter 14, and I don't think he has to worry about falling asleep. This week, we're all going to see people. 
We're going to see people we know well, and we're going to see people that we don't know at all. And my question for you is this. What will be your honor in Christ? If we live with that mentality, I guarantee we will not get sleepy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you that you allowed yourself to be arrested, beaten, mocked, and scorned. We, th- we thank you that you allowed yourself to be killed for our sake. God, we thank you that you are not dead, that right now as we speak to you, you are seated at the right hand of the throne of God. God, we believe this. We love you. We trust you. And now as we get ready to leave, we pray that you would give us the courage to treat others the way that you have treated us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.